Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. So today we have Carl Zimmer on the podcast. Zimmer reports from the frontiers of biology, where scientists are expanding our understanding of life. Since 2004, he has written about science for the New York Times, where his column Matter has appeared weekly since 2013. Zimmer has won many awards for his work, including the Stephen Jay Gould Prize, awarded by the Society for the Study of Evolution, to recognize individuals whose sustained efforts have advanced public understanding of evolutionary science. Zimmer is the author of 13 books about science, And his latest book is She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Power, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity. Thanks for chatting with me today, Carl. Thanks for having me. I remember when I was a wee grad student at Yale and you came to do, I was so excited that I got selected to be in this little group of people to to talk to the great Carl Zimmer about public science communication. Do you remember that? Like, it was like, we're talking like a decade ago. (laughs) Yeah, I've been doing it uh, every spring since uh, with some Yale graduate students. Um, Oh, cool. It it just, you know, the the interest is just getting stronger and stronger. I think grad students who are looking at a future in science, you know, realize that, um, you know, part of it is connecting with everybody else. They don't look at science purely as just collecting data. That's right. And I remember listening to you talk and thinking to myself, I want to do what that guy does someday. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so you really were an inspiration. You're the way that you, right. the way that you write is, 
balanced. And I think that's what we need more of in the science communication world is balance, right? So this book, let's talk about this book because it's an interesting sort of hybrid model because it's kind of reads like a novel in a way, you know, it's kind of like a page turner. And I want to start off with the word heredity, which is in your title because, you know, a lot of people think heredity and they think genetics. And could you please explain a little bit why they're not synonymous in this book that you've written, genetics and heredity? Right. So the word genetics, you know, is actually a pretty young word. It's a little over 100 years old, whereas the word heredity is thousands of years old. The oldest root that we can trace it to is hereditas from Latin. And so we've been thinking about heredity in lots of different ways for a long time, long before the science of genetics came on the scene. And heredity means a lot of things to us. It means incredibly important things to us. It is how we connect ourselves to the past and to the future, and also how we define ourselves. You know, what is our blood? You know, uh, that in a way that kind of says who we are. And genetics as a science came about as an attempt to answer the question of what is heredity, but a very particular version of heredity. In other words, mm-hmm. In the 1800s, people like Charles Darwin really started to conceptualize heredity as being some sort of physical substance on a microscopic scale that was being passed down from one generation to the next. And I'd argue that you know genetics is you know a hugely important answer to what is heredity, but actually heredity is even bigger than that. It's not simply saying, oh, heredity is genes does a real disservice to heredity itself. It's much bigger than that, and it really defies our intuitions about what connects us to the future and the past. Great. And there's a lot of weirdness to heredity that uh, stick to the standard story that a lot of people learn even in like eighth grade biology class, right? You know, there's more to the story that whether you inherited your mother's blue eyes, for instance, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that We're in this situation in the 21st century where most people learn about genetics in grade school or high school, and then that's about it. And they get about as far as Mendel. Right. And so we tend to think about heredity not just in terms of genes, but as single genes, as genes that are, you know, totally dominant and recessive. And, you know, if there's some trait, well, you must have the gene for that trait. And actually, you know, Mendel is a great place to start to understand heredity, but it's a terrible place to stop. Yeah. Because, you know, if you take a trait like height, for example, there's no height gene. There are thousands of genes that make proteins that are involved in lots of different things going on in our cells and between our cells. And, mutations to those thousands of genes can alter our height on average so that, uh, you know, if you have a variant for, for one gene, you know, that might on average, you know, increase people's height, you know, maybe a millimeter. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to look at your parents or your grandparents and say like, oh, I'm, you know, short because they're short. Well, Yes, but they're actually you're actually talking about thousands of different genes and all these complex uh, interactions between them just to talk about height. And that's really like the low hanging fruit when it comes to talking about who we are. If you want to mm-hmm. talk about things like personality or intelligence or and, we and will. things that's like that. Well. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, well, then it's just you got to to step back and take a bigger view of heredity. And what's exciting is that actually, you know, scientists right now are starting to really grapple with heredity on that scale. You know, they can actually look at entire genomes and actually look at them at this at a huge scale using incredibly powerful computers to get at these basic questions. So I, I wanted to share the excitement of the scientific progress that's happening right now. But in order to do that, you have to sort of sort of break out of that kind of high school genetics that is really was irrelevant. It was relevant a hundred years ago. It's not so relevant now. Good, good. And you argue that we need a new definition of heredity that takes into account some of the exciting recent discoveries such as CRISPR and Cas9 gene editing, so as well as other technologies. And I'd like to just cover some of these new emerging tech, exciting technologies. Could you please explain some of the upcoming uh, or what we currently have in the technology in terms of gene editing? CRISPR is a gene editing technology, which basically is a, a way to design molecules that are able to zero in on some particular spot in a genome cut out a little section of DNA, and in some cases, insert another stretch of DNA in the place of what was taken out. So you can think of it a bit like, you know, searching through a Microsoft Word document, highlighting a a passage, and then deleting it, or pasting in something else. And where are we at in that technology right now? How expensive is this technology? What do you sort of predict how many years till this becomes more widespread, maybe even available to the general public? Well, you know, if you go to biology labs, it's in widespread use. I mean, everybody's using it. Okay. And, you know, they will use it for all sorts of different things. So, like, let's say you want to do an experiment uh, to figure out which genes are essential for a cancer cell to grow aggressively to be, be a cancer cell. You can just create a bunch of cell colonies and petri dishes and use CRISPR in each one of those to cut out a different gene. And then you just see how well they grow after that. And so scientists have actually done this. You know, they've gone through and like, you know, 20,000 or so genes and cut out every one. And they've made up this list, this much shorter list of essential cancer genes. And that is going to be a huge... That's huge. uh, It's huge because then, you know, there are actually drug companies right now who are using these uh, catalogs to say like, okay, like we're going to now look for uh, cancer drugs that go after this particular gene. You know, nobody knew that this gene was essential for cancer. Now we know. Now we're going to go for it. So that's just one example of what people are using CRISPR for. Um, I think where... CRISPR gets its real excitement and, and maybe some anxiety for some people is the ability to use CRISPR to make permanent inherited changes in an organism. And so right now, there's a lot of work going on with plants to use CRISPR to tinker with the DNA of crops. Let's, for example, to make tomatoes that um, can grow in a shorter growing season, for example. Mm-hmm. Turns out if you just cut out a tiny piece of DNA, which is just acts like a little sort of control switch to one gene, you can actually get them to grow better in more northern climates. So there's a case where, you know, once you've created that change with CRISPR, that can get passed down from generation to generation. 
And so, you know, the, the possibility arises that you could do the same thing in animals, which some people are experimenting with. The real controversy, of course, is what if you use this on humans? Exactly. And we build up to psychological traits and discuss those implications. Like, would we be able to edit thousands of genes at the same time? Well, it's hard to look into the future and say exactly what gene editing will allow us to do in the future. Right now, no way. <laughs> right. Right, <laughs> We're right now, like single genes at this point, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's very hard to do more than just one gene. I mean, there have been some experiments where people have, you know, altered a few genes at the same time. And there have been cases actually where people have been able to cut out, you know, many dozens of pieces of DNA at once. But that's, I won't, I won't say it's cheating, but what they're doing in a case like that is that they're actually looking for almost identical sequences of DNA and cutting them all out. This is actually a study where researchers wanted to make a breed of pigs that would be safer for using for possible growing organs for transplantation. And the problem with pigs is that they have certain stretches of DNA in their genome that are actually viruses that got embedded in their genome. Lots of species have this. But you don't want to get a pig transplant and then uh, suddenly have it producing viruses inside of you. That that would be bad. But sure. with CRISPR, it looks like you can actually go in and just edit all of those out at once. Mm. Uh, and so it might be possible to produce a breed of pigs that was free of these, what are called endogenous retroviruses. That's so fascinating. We're like long way off from like psychiatrists instead of prescribing SSRIs, prescribing CRISPR. Like, Yeah, no, yeah. I, 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 that will, I don't want to say never, you never yeah. know. But yeah. I mean, one thing I hope my book gets across is just what an insanely complicated proposal that would be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because when you talk about uh, traits like intelligence or personality, you're talking about things that are certainly influenced by genes, but they yeah. are influenced, again, by thousands of genes, and each gene is playing a part that we don't understand at all. Yeah. And, you know, maybe one makes a protein that makes some particular connection between neurons, maybe another one is involved with the molecules that act as signals between neurons, but how that translates to, you know, depression is, we just do not know. We were nowhere near making those sorts of connections from the genetic level to the, you know, the level of how we experience life. And not only that, but these genes are, are working in an environment. And so, you know, you may, it's possible you may have genes that may put you at risk for... Right certain conditions as an adult, but only like if you grow up in a very stressful environment. Yeah. If you don't, then they're not a risk factor at all. So to say like, oh, well, if we just change the spelling, then everything's fine, totally uh, misses the point when it comes to uh, our psychology. Yeah, it's an excellent point. So you talk about some examples that Stephen Jay Gould talked about, similar examples in The Mismeasure of Man. So like the Kalakak family story. I and mean, then you also talk about Cyril Burt's fraud. You know, it would be great if you could just briefly summarize that. But my real question is that, you know, the, the truth of the matter is even though some of their work was really shoddy, I mean, modern science does confirm some of their hypotheses nevertheless, in the sense that there is a genetic contribution, not deterministic, but probabilistic to 
uh, intelligence and IQ, right? It's kind of a baby in bathwater situation. Mm. Um, I, I focus a lot in the book on, as you mentioned, this book called The Calicac Family. Mm. Uh, this was a, actually, I, and I organized that chapter actually around a woman who was the subject of this book and was sort of involuntarily turned into kind of a poster child for eugenics. Her name was Emma Wolverton, and she was institutionalized in a home for the quote-unquote feeble-minded, not because she was feeble-minded, but because she basically got in the way. Her mother wanted to get rid of her so she could get remarried. And this happened all the time. And as she would end up spending her entire life in institutions, even though she could very well have survived just fine on her own in the outside world. When she was a teenager, she met a man named Henry Goddard, who was a psychologist who was hired at her school, the Vineland Training School. And he had discovered intelligence testing in Europe, which was just a way of trying to decide whether children were sort of kind of had an average mental age for their age or were a little slow or a little, a little ahead. And he started testing the, the students and then got so excited by the results he was getting that he started to think that he could like come up with a whole science of intelligence. And around the, this time, he discovers genetics, which is very new at the time, and decides to go off and find the families of his students. And what he does is he draws pedigrees for all his students, and he he will mark you know people who lived 50, 100, 150 years earlier as feeble-minded, just from the stories that his field workers would hear. And then he would then use this as evidence that feeble-mindedness was a simple genetic trait, maybe carried by one gene. Mm. So he publishes this book called The Kalakak Family about his discovery. And, you know, and this, he and others use this as evidence for a really aggressive eugenics program mm. because they feel like, well, there are so many feeble-minded people and we have to stop them from having children in order to save our country. Uh, and you can't institutionalize all of them. So Goddard lobbies very aggressively for state laws for sterilization. Tens of thousands of Americans were sterilized as a result of these laws. And in Nazi Germany, the Kalakak family book was used as prime evidence for their own attempts to you know, reshape the human race. Yeah. Uh, and not only did they do sterilization, but they went further to extermination, all based on this this faulty line of evidence. So I think that no matter what sort of scientific discoveries that are happening now, 100 years later, we have to look back and see just how easy it was for very intelligent people, for very, uh, you know, for the for very prominent scientists to leap to incredibly harmful, destructive ideas based on on their idea that they had figured everything out when it comes to heredity. Mm. So here we are now, and if people are saying like, "Oh, well, you know, it, it's easy. We will just change these genes, and everything will be fine." I think we have to really question ourselves and ask: Are we falling prey to the same kind of arrogance and mm -hmm. simplicity that previous generations have fallen prey to. And that's a really clear point, a good point that you make in your book is about how much damage scientists, and not just scientists, that all of us can do when the science is poorly interpreted, unethically applied. So I think that is an excellent point. But it's coming out fast, this genetic research using like genome-wide association studies. Some scientists tend to get Extremely excited over it. 
do you fear at all? And I do, I personally do fear sometimes that we might get too excited over the method sometimes and lose sight of the actual purpose. Like we get so excited about, wow, we invented this new way where we can capture even more genes, you know, without actually looking at kind of a societal bigger picture, but both are important to understand, right? Yeah. And, you know, as a science writer, I I find it really interesting to go back a hundred years and look at sort of how science writers then would talk about genetics and talk about these claims about intelligence and genetics. And that really does, you know, it really does influence my work now as a journalist, you know, so in the New York Times, I'm reporting a lot on genetic studies on things like intelligence and educational attainment and things like that. I think these are really important studies, but I also feel like I want to be helping to really set the public record straight in the sense that, Mm. you know, it's really significant, for example, that scientists are now starting to identify genes for the very first time, they're up to, I think they're up to a few hundred now, that have a statistically very strong association with how people do on intelligence test scores. You know, they are passing very rigorous uh, statistical tests, but the catch is that each one of those genes, you know, the variants might account for a tiny fraction yeah. of one IQ point. That's, yeah. that's the paradox, is, is to say, like, Statistically speaking, this is, this association is is strong, and they're being replicated. Hmm. So they're doing everything that you would you would want in good science, but you can't then leave out that final step of saying, well, what does that add up to? Hmm. And it doesn't add up to very much at all. And so you know, to the idea that you could somehow you know get somebody's DNA and a baby's DNA and just you know predict their intelligence or some other part of their life related to intelligence, you know, in adulthood, you, you can't do that. I mean, it's just not possible, you know, with what we understand about intelligence. And so, so when I'm reporting on these things, I want to, I am trying to strike that balance. And not only between, you know, showing how the science actually works, showing the actual, you know, limits of the science, but also like to say like, well, take that next step and say like, well, what is that you know, how, how, what do we do with that information? You know, yeah. so some people are actually claiming that we can create what they call precision education mm-hmm. based on the students' genetics. Yeah. Pullman, Robert Pullman is big into that, right? He is, he yeah. is, yeah. But I've talked to a lot of people who are very skeptical of that and sort of feel like he's kind of, kind of looking past the big picture of education. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, We've got much bigger fish to fry in terms of, at least in the United States. I mean, you know, like, I don't want to even hear, I I don't think we should even be really talking that much about these issues until, you know, like, there are up-to-date textbooks in all schools, like things like that. I mean, it's just like our schools have much bigger problems to deal with, much more urgent issues than trying to figure out whether precision education could work or not. Maybe I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second in in some sense. So we do know there's some really interesting research showing that certain brain development patterns in childhood do predict things like dyslexia, some learning disabilities, and that if we sort of catch a risk for some of these things early, we can actually cause a better trajectory moving forward. So uh, yeah, I just recently edited a book on this sort of thing on uh, kids who are twice exceptional who have a learning disability but also have areas of intellectual potential, and so. 
I guess one could argue, and I don't know about the genetic level, but at least I, it's more easy for me to wrap my head around like brain scans, you know, in, in a sense. But, you know, if someone were to make that argument and say that that could be informative information, what would you say? Well, it depends on what question you're trying to answer. That's a good, you good know, answer. There, there, there are unquestionably, you know, some genetic variations that are very clearly linked to, you know, intellectual developmental disability. You know, we could just talk about things like Down syndrome. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like you can see like having that extra chromosome has a clear cut effect, among other things, on on how a child will learn. I mean, there's there's no question about that. And there may be some very important, you know, precise links between genes and certain kinds of learning disabilities or maybe even certain kinds of learning strengths that could emerge, you know, and it might have something to do, let's say, with, you know, some very narrow part of, of the learning experience. The yeah. thing is, with, and the tricky thing with, with what we call quote-unquote intelligence is that it reflects uh, lots of different ways of learning and solving problems. You know, it's basically, it's almost like a, there's a, a correlation between, between things like memory and solving logic problems and so on and so forth. And there's definitely something there. I mean, I think there's a huge amount of psychological literature to show that there's, quote unquote, something there. Like but, the G factor? Um, yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, general intelligence or, you know, they're, you know they're, people are doing, using different words for the sort of underlying factor. And, you know, you can actually see that there are genes that have an influence on that. Yeah. And so that does tell you that there's something there, but it's so all-encompassing that it's very hard. I would find it very hard to see how you could really get any sort of useful yeah. targeted help by trying to look for look at these genes on this list, this growing list that are linked to what we call intelligence. Yeah, it's a good point. And modern day educational psychologists working within my field, they de-emphasize the global IQ score. It's really about how to specific deficits in like maybe verbal processing or auditory processing, et cetera, how that can inform a custom-tailored intervention. So my argument was not about, you know, the global IQ genes, but more about like more targeted specific things that could actually inform interventions. I could see um, that being used alongside a well, not used exclusively. I, I think that would be a huge problem if we started if we started to use IQ or started to use our genetic information A as a sorting mechanism and B as, you know, the exclusive information of saying, oh, well, you know what, we don't, it predicts more variance than family homes. So therefore, let's not care about family environment. I mean, that would be uh, catastrophic, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the most interesting potential for this kind of research is not actually to try to use it on individuals, but actually to Mm. try to do more research on large groups of people. Because you can, for example, test out different kinds of ways of improving education. And if you can control for genes that are associated with intelligence or how long you stay in school, that gives you this extra tool. And that actually makes it possible for you to get really statistically meaningful results out of actually much smaller tests. You know, so if you want to say, okay, if we give families money, Mm. will that help their kids stay in school longer? That's an expensive question to answer. And, but if you have the DNA of these families, you can actually then control for 
genes that you know already have an influence on how long people stay in school. It's a small influence. You know, the genes seem to predict things like around 10 or 20% of the variation in how long people stay in school. Mm. That's small. You, that's not a crystal ball. Mm. But that's enough for you to to get a, sort of a leg up on these these questions. Um, and so I certainly that's where social scientists that I talk to, that's where they get excited about these results. Yeah. And Paige Harden's written some good stuff about that. You know, good, good. So let's move on to mosquitoes. It's a less uncomfortable topic to discuss, <laughs> but equally as important. So genetically modified mosquitoes, how could this turn into a nightmare? <laughs> <laughs> Can you think of any, any way? Um, none jumped to mind, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't happen. You know, there are certainly are cases where we have done things in science that had unintended consequences. Uh, and certainly introducing genetically engineered organisms into the wild is, is something that we need to do carefully if we do it at all. So in, in the book, I talk about using actually using CRISPR to genetically engineer mosquitoes uh, so that they will pass down malaria-proof genes to their, uh, to their offspring. Mm. And the idea is that once you do that, that's going to be it. I mean, you may not be able to undo that. So within a few years, all the mosquitoes in an area may have these genes. So, you know, you want to think very carefully before you set those mosquitoes loose. On the other hand, you know, you also have to take bear in mind that, you know, maybe around half a million people die every year of malaria. And, you know, while we've made a lot of progress with all sorts of different treatments, we haven't created a vaccine that makes people immune. And, you know, the, the medications for malaria are not great. So there is an urgent need to do something. And so the question is, is CRISPR going to be that? But, you know, as you say, like, could you wreak havoc with this? Well, maybe. I mean, I don't know. I mean, mosquitoes, they're a part of their ecosystem. And if you tamper with their biology, are you going to alter how they interact with other species? Will that radiate out into unexpected changes? That's certainly something that, you know, scientists are looking seriously at. Yeah, it's just as possible as the, the havoc we can wreak by trying to alter our own DNA. You know, there's a whole bunch of people that would love, uh, once this technology advances, to try to live forever, right? To try to, like, change the course of human evolution. So, yeah, all these things are really important to discuss even if we're like so many years ahead, it's great that people like you, again, the conversation started. So similar topic, genetically modified crops. What will this mean for us in the environment? Well, you know, this is really moving forward in a way that sort of fits in with, you know, the past decades of crop engineering, you know, basically saying, trying to find ways to get crops to grow to grow better, to grow under different uh, conditions and so on. The advantage that CRISPR has over some earlier methods is that you, for one thing, you can introduce particular mutations that you already have good reason to think are going to be effective, rather than, say, blasting corn plants with, with x-rays and just introducing lots of random mutations. Before now, the genetic engineering that people may be familiar with was really about sort of introducing DNA from one species to another. Mm. And CRISPR doesn't require that because you can, you know, make tweaks to the plant's own, own DNA. 
So you may be able to have crops that may be able to grow under, you know, drought conditions that we're probably we're going to be facing because of climate change. There's a lot of promise to using them that way. You know, the what I would hope would not happen is that companies would use CRISPR to basically engineer crops to be resistant to pesticides that mm-hmm. that would then lead to massive use of that particular pesticide, which can potentially have harm to the environment and then, you know, also eventually lead to resistance in the insects or the weeds that you're trying to kill, which then forces you to go to a different pesticide, which might be even more harmful. If we get stuck on that sort of treadmill, that could be a problem. Thank you for explaining that. Another thing I found really extremely interesting in your book, like one of the hundred things on the list, are emerging research in the field of developmental biology and how the external environment can produce some quirky forms of uh, heredity. Can you describe that? You talk about it in rats, but how they can learn to, to fear certain odors associated with a shock, uh, and that can be inherited by the offspring. Is that right? Yeah. So this is a, a part of a big area of research uh, known as epigenetics. And you know, epigenetics has inspired a huge amount of fascination across the board. I mean, it's it's really interesting how when I give talks about heredity, when it's time for Q&A, lots of people want to know about epigenetics. And so epigenetics basically means, the way I think about it is the control that cells have over their genes to determine which genes actually do stuff and which are silent. And it's clear that uh, you know, as, as we develop, our cells shut certain genes down pretty much permanently and allow other ones to be active. And that's, you know, that's how we are able to produce, you know, hundreds of different kinds of tissues in our bodies just from one genome. And, and, you know, when your skin cells divide, they make more skin, they don't suddenly turn into teeth or something. So it's not like epigenetics is some weird fringe idea. It's at the Mm. center of biology. But you know, the fact is that also our environment can trigger epigenetic changes in us, you know, whether it's uh, stress or some other kind of experience. And so some people have said, well, is there any way for those changes to actually get passed down to the next generation? So if your genes undergo an epigenetic change in how they're running, could your children inherit that change? So this would be a sort of a separate channel of heredity. And so there's this one very uh, high-profile experiment that researchers did. They exposed male rats, I believe, to a, an odor, a harmless odor, and then would give them a shock. And eventually, they learned to associate the odor with the shock. And you could sort of measure their response. As soon as they smelled the odor, they knew that something bad was coming. These male uh, rats then mated, and then the pups who, you know, had only inherited, you know, their, the genes and whatever else was in the sperm of those male rats, they seem to have an odd response to that odor as well. Mm. Fascinating, but it hasn't been replicated. And it's not like people have shown that this gets carried down through several generations. So there are actually a lot of scientists who are very skeptical that this is actually a real result at all. If it was, that would be really quite amazing. But, you know, I think we have to be really cautious about embracing these kinds of results. That being said, this kind of epigenetic heredity is real. 
it's just not necessarily real in us or in rats. Mm. Uh, in plants, for example, you know, plants that get attacked by insects and they can, you know, create a bunch of chemicals to ward them off, their offspring are going to respond faster to chemical attacks than other plants would. And that gets carried down through generations. And so, so epigenetic inheritance, this alternate way of inheriting things is a real thing. One of my colleagues who studied prodigies in depth was really interested in, in a finding that a, a large proportion of his prodigies, you'd find that somewhere like the great grandfather had a similar talent, you know, that seemed to kind of burst forth without too much practice in the young child. And that's never been explained. And it, it'd be interesting to see if this can help explain that at all. Well, you know, I mean, I guess I'd be skeptical that this would go anywhere to explaining that because, you know, you'd, you'd have to ask, well, how was it that that was sort of carried down through the generations? And why didn't the intervening generations show it? You can see how that happens with recessive genes. There's a very clear way that that can work, but no one's really come up with a good explanation for how epigenetics could work in a similar way. Fair enough. So maybe an alternative possibility is just that the child seems to just have genes that facilitate their learning in that specific domain. They just happen to get that package of genes from the gene pool. I mean, it's interesting to think about. It's all very interesting to think about. And, you know, we, we're always looking to try to figure out how children turn out the way they are. It's very tempting, though, to look at their ancestors and do a kind of pattern matching experiment. Mm -hmm. And you may just be seeing connections that really aren't there. That is just a, a random association. So let's move on to human chimeras, people whose bodies contain a multitude of genomes or just a different, you know, genomes. Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah, so we like to think that we inherit a genome that's a combination of DNA from our two parents, and there's just one genome, and that's who we are. But the fact is that we can inherit, inherit different genomes. So some people are actually a combination of twins, where some of their cells come from one of the twins, and some of them the cells come from the other. And this, they might not even know they had a twin. Uh, the twin may have uh, died in the uterus before birth. It's also what's also remarkable is that people can actually pass their DNA to their mothers before they're born. And so mothers can actually become chimeras where fetal cells actually take root in their bodies, even in their brains, and develop into neurons. So, you know, a lot of us are, in fact, chimeras. And, and you know, it used to be thought of as like a bizarre freak of nature, but mm -hmm. I'd say that a substantial fraction of humans are chimeras. Well, I didn't know that till I read your book, so that's really extraordinarily interesting. Let me ask you a little bit about your own personal experience, because I know that you got your own genome sequence, and you know, like Americans are obsessed with understanding their ancestry and 23andMe and stuff like that. What did you personally learn from sequencing your own DNA, and what do you think some of the limits of that knowledge are at this point in time? I think that we have been waiting for this moment when we can look at our own DNA, look at our own genomes, and we've been anticipating this as a profound, almost mystical experience. And I think we've been enabled by that, by some of these companies that offer these services. I don't think that the experience is going to match up with those expectations for most people. Now, some people are going to discover that they have some mutations that they should be concerned about. You know, people who have a family history of any particular disease actually should just go to their doctor anyway and just try to get genetic testing that's more reliable than these direct-to-consumer things. 
But, you know, for me, getting my whole genome sequenced, uh, you know, fortunately, I didn't discover anything really scary in there. But it was an opportunity to learn how my one genome, like thousands of other genomes, can be studied to understand really the history of our whole species, you know, how our ancestors interbred with Neanderthals and other vanished kinds of people, how certain genes arose and became more common, even sometimes when these are genes that could be associated with disease. So I think that the best way to approach the possibility of looking at your own DNA is seeing it as a way not to learn about yourself in a kind of narcissistic way, but to learn about your species. Well, that's a, that's a great point to end. Thank you so much for your time today and for writing such a, a beautiful and informative book. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me. It was good talking to you. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the Psychology Podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Calm. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.